For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, we'll go beyond opioids to look at the roots of addiction behavior and hear from two people struggling to reach a healthier place in relation to something that each of us needs, uses, and must think about every day, food. That's next on this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. As many as 40 million Americans meet the clinical conditions to qualify as an addict, according to a study from Columbia University. Food, gambling, shopping, even exercise are examples of addictions that, when out of control, can be as damaging to people's lives as drugs or alcohol. First, we'll hear from Beth, a Tucsonan who speaks from the heart about her life experience with food addiction. Beth has been a member of Overeaters Anonymous since the year 2000 and credits the organization with helping to save her life. Well, food was always a challenge for me. Uh, I, it didn't cause me any real grief until college when I developed my eating disorder, and that was very hard. What form does your eating disorder take? How do you describe it? My food addiction has progressed over the years. I was very conscious of my weight, so I dealt with it through exercise. In junior high, I tried some some laxatives, and then in college, when I was a freshman in college, I heard about bulimia, and I thought, there you go, and now I can eat like I want to, because the main thing for me was I cannot be fat, you know, this was just the taboo, I, you know, I grew up, my dad was always critical of our weight, in those days, it was okay for men to comment about what you were eating, and you're going to get fat, and um, so my main thing was just to keep a low profile, and so I, I discovered throwing up, and that's when I, it took a while to get good at it, but I, I eventually got good at it, and that's was how I coped with my eating. Did you have brothers or sisters? I had two sisters. I am the middle child. Did you feel that all three of you received the same kind of scrutiny, or for some reason do you think you were singled out? Oh, my older sister was singled out. So being the good middle child, I tried to lay low and go under the radar. And so whatever that took, whatever that took, it was never about being healthy or taking care of myself. It was all about how I would look and being able to get the food that I wanted. So let's talk then about the food, because what I'm hearing you say is that you had a hunger that you couldn't satisfy at the dinner table. Right. Right. I, I always wanted to eat more. When I was five years old, our, our grandma introduced us to M&Ms, and I was immediately covetous of my sisters. She would put them in a bowl, so it was like a free pour of M&Ms, and it was just, it blew my mind. I just couldn't get my mind off, geez, I wish I could have that whole bag. And finally, um, you know, the only reason my eating had to be subdued. I had to keep it under wraps until I got to college when there was nobody watching over my shoulder. I had money to spend and I had freedom and autonomy. So that's when I was able to eat like I really wanted to. The first thing you mentioned that you tried that sounded to me like something that an average person doesn't turn to is laxatives. Mm -hmm. Um, You might need them when you're ill, but as a supplement... It was a coping mechanism. The main thing was, how can I eat as much as I want, but not show it on my body? 
So when I was in swim team in high school, that was the best time for that because I could come home, I could eat three scoops of ice cream and still weigh 105. But keep in mind, my head was in the pool three hours a day. I would eat too much, eat, 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 and then I would starve for a couple days and, uh, and exercise a lot. Isn't that an odd dichotomy and willpower? For two or three days, you would indulge, but then for two or three days, you would have the willpower to not? Right, right. And that lasted until it didn't work anymore. You know, as soon as I found out about bulimia, I turned to that because it was just so hard to not eat for three days, three, four days. And uh, the bulimia was a great solution, except I was in a very public atmosphere at college, and it was very hard to hide that. So I, I went to all kinds of lengths to hide my eating. Um, I used to throw up in the garbage can in my room, in the, and I'd take the liner out to the dumpster. Mm-hmm. One time I went out to throw up in the parking lot. Um, I, I ate a candy bar in the shower one time. Mm-hmm. Bulimia seems uh, even more so than what I said about laxatives. Bulimia sounds like something that would be really hard on your body. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that and what kind of... Uh, effects you think that had on your overall health? The health effects were secondary. It was in my disease, was, was what we call compulsive eating. You know, I, I had lost the power of choice about how much and when I ate. It was an all-consuming compulsion. I mean, for times, you know, there would be days when I wouldn't wouldn't do it, but but it was all-consuming, and it was never about health. Never, ever. I knew there would be consequences. I was a quote-unquote smart bulimic because I didn't leave it down for long. I'd bring it right up. I'd brush my teeth, drink a bunch of water. But the bottom line is that I have a throat condition today where I can't eat uh, chips or it'll perforate my throat. Um, And my enamel is toast. When did you first think that you needed or that you wanted to get help? Mm. I was always oh, was the last place I wanted to go. Overeaters Anonymous was not where I saw myself. I mean, it's only food for heaven's sake. It's just food. Just exercise more, eat less. But for me, food was a coping mechanism. Food was unconditional. Food was always there. Food, it was never hard to get. It was easy to buy. It was easy to keep. It was easy to hide. And I um, got to the point, I was married, I had a three-year-old daughter, and we just moved up to the foothills, so we had this beautiful home, and it was, this was Veterans Day, and my daughter was at school, my husband was at work, it was a beautiful day, I could have gone for a walk, I could have done any number of things, but what I did was I started a binge. I started a binge that lasted three days, and I, I ate all day, I would eat, I would throw up, I would go out, get more, I'd come back, I was creating fights, and this, this is kind of before this too, I would, I would start a fight with my husband so that I could go out and buy more food. I would have to rotate through the drive throughs so they didn't recognize me. And, of course, I had to get, you know, I'm going to have this for Sally and this for my husband, and, oh, I think Alina wants this. So, uh, you know, so I had to ha- put on the show. when well, I Role went. play, even yeah. for someone you may never see again. Right, yeah. right. And it was very tiring. I would be up at 11 at night, just I had to finish that bag of cookies. I had to finish that ice cream. It, I just had to finish it. So... You said Overeaters Anonymous would be the last place I would want to oh be. Oh, my God. Yes. 
I went in 1997 and, and I didn't see, I didn't see recovery. I didn't see, you know, I wasn't ready that, and that is the truth for me. So that was the first time you attended a meeting then? Right. It was about yes. 20 years ago? Well, yes. What led you to be at that meeting? If that was uh, the last well, place you wanted to be, what turned the key? I happened to be in treatment for alcohol addiction okay. and, and of course they want you to be honest there. And I told them about my eating disorder. So they encouraged me to go to OA. I got sober but my eating disorder did not subside. I figured, well, you know, the 12 steps work for, you know, alcohol. Why can't, why isn't my spiritual health repairing my eating disorder? What's going on? And um, it just didn't. And so finally, after three years of being unavailable emotionally to my family and being so miserable, so miserable, I just finally said, okay, I, I knew someone who was in OA, and she was slim, and she used to be bulimic, and I said, okay, it works. If she can do it, then I'll give it a try. And she was, we have what's called a sponsor, because we don't do this alone, and she took me through the steps, the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous, and I have not binged, I have not binged and purged since that day. So I've been, um, it's been 16 years for me. Can you give us a couple of the primary things that you think you really had to accept? (laughs) Tell me why you reacted that way first. Oh, it's just so hard. Surrender is so hard. A lifetime of a certain relationship with food and relying on it in that way and then accepting and surrendering that my relationship with food must be different if I want a different life and my life is so good today. My life is so good today. So the surrender was huge piece. Just and that's the thing. Like we come in, the surrender doesn't happen all at once. It's it's incremental, and no surrender comes without pain. It's almost like it's a rule, you know, for me at least. I get getting enough pain, I surrender some more. So surrender and of course terminating my relationship with my binge foods. To better understand why and how addiction begins and the fundamental ways it can influence human behavior, AZPM mental health reporter Gisela Tellis spoke with Todd Vanderhaa, professor and the department head of pharmacology in the College of Medicine at the University of Arizona. Todd, what do we know about how addiction works? Like what happens to us in our brains and bodies when we're addicted to something? The main thing is that, let's just say over time, what's happened is that the brain has created a system in which you reward things. And so if we all go back to sort of the beginning of time, in order to survive, you'd have to have things like food and water and reproduction. And so those things would actually be rewarded by the brain stimulating something that would say, oh, that felt good, or I should continue to do that. And so addiction sort of comes along these lines to say, let's release something that makes us feel good or uh, generates this feeling of good to make sure that we actually go back to doing that. So it would be eating food, uh, drinking water, or reproduction. And so uh, the, the brain has set up this very nice system in which it will release certain neurotransmitters that actually will produce this euphoric feeling we call our good feeling. And how do we get from I have a good feeling when I eat a meal mm-hmm. to having an addiction to food? What happens is that uh, individuals will start to realize that, huh, this really felt good, and why should I do anything else besides just continue to pursue that? And there are usually many different reasons why individuals will sort of uh, lead on to addictions, uh, and usually those are uh, what we would call particular instances in which they're trying to um, take care of 
problems in their life, whether it's depression or they just don't uh, like where their life's going or other things sort of take over uh, in which they say, I don't want to think about these other things that sort of bring me down. And I know that when, let's say, I eat something or I drink something or I get into drugs, I feel much better. And those things kind of go to the side and I don't have to think about it. And so often it's thought that addiction is due to this uh, overwhelming uh, reasons to sort of get away from the bad negative feelings or these depression feelings. And so that uh, and of course, people will then uh, continue to pursue those things and hence can lead to addictions. As you sort of describe that, it sounds a little bit like a choice, like I want to forget about mm -hmm. these things that are going on, so I'm going to keep going down this path. But all the research suggests that it's, it's not actually a choice. It's sort of this, this reward system getting hijacked. Yes, yes. And so it, and it is. And often it's this hijacking of this, this system that makes us feel better um, is kind of a conscious higher cognitive uh, thing that uh, so you have sort of this what we call sort of the limbic system which is sort of that uh, system that's often described when we teach neuroscience it's that it's the primitive animal uh, one and that's the one we sort of talked about in which you pursue things in order to survive and then what happens is humans have sort of this higher cognitive function in which they can think about things on a level of saying well maybe I shouldn't continue this this might not be so great but that also that level of higher cognitive function will begin to start to say hey I remember that when I did these types of other processes, whether it was eating too much or drinking, it really kind of removed my problems. And so that cognitive part can help us to prevent us from becoming addictive, but it can also take over and become the the continual thoughts on a daily process of, I just remember that when I did this, all my problems were gone. And so it's kind of a, a two-way you know, edged sword in which we have the part that says don't do this and then you also have a part that continues reminds you of how great that addiction was and so it continues to push you back that way. So then what happens when you try to recover when you try to break away from this addiction it's yes. particularly if it's a food addiction mm -hmm. and then you still mm -hmm. need to eat. Mm -hmm. Yes you know there's many difficult problems that of, of trying to break sort of the addictions and and of course uh, this steps into the field of, of having lots of psychological and psychotherapies uh, and sessions in which you have to discuss and talk about these issues. Uh, in food addictions, I think it's very difficult because as you point out that you have to have food to survive. Uh, but it's all about the idea of understanding limits or numbers of limits. And again, many people with food addictions have troubles trying to understand, you know, maybe just one small ice cream cone is better than eating the whole gallon of ice cream. But a lot of the problem when people do uh, have these food addictions, it's usually coupled with some other type of psychological issues. And again, uh, covering up some of the problems that they don't want to think about. And so often what you can do is uh, get help there. What are the reasons why they think they need to eat so much or continue to eat on, on uh, in those particular cases? In cases of drug abuse with uh, addiction, it's very difficult because you have two sets. You have a psychological addiction, as you do with food, but often with drugs of abuse, you also have a physical addiction in which uh, you've overridden this system so much with these drugs of abuse that you've kind of activated what we think of as an autonomic nervous system. And then when you pull this away, as people will do when they try to get off the drugs, you have both, again, the psychological problems, but you also have a physical problem in which you start to activate many of these systems that you can't control in which you have this total physical withdrawal. And in some cases can actually produce death, a rapid withdrawal from many of the drugs of abuse. And so it's a very uh, a difficult problem with, with addiction and getting people off these addictions.
What do you think people get wrong about addiction? I, I think right away um, is that they put them into a category like they are um, losers or uh, people that uh, should be sort of put to the side or costing society a lot of money. Uh, and I think by doing that, all it does is push those people to further their addictions. And they need maybe counseling or just time to spend together. And a lot of times, a lot of these groups that do get together to discuss addiction, it's because they are actually coming together as a group and all understand each other's issues. I think it's fantastic because it's hard for people on the outside that aren't addicts um, to understand what they're going and thinking. And we think we can help them, but a lot of times people with addictions need each other uh, to understand what drives their addiction. Gisela Tellis spoke with Todd Vanderhaa the Department Head of Pharmacology in the College of Medicine at the University of Arizona. Next, we'll hear a story of food addiction from Carl, a 72-year-old who's been living in Tucson since 1993. Carl is also an active member of Overeaters Anonymous. I was able to eat just about anything and as much as I wanted as a child, and uh, I was always thin. When I started working hard and farming, I... uh, thought I could eat as much as I wanted, and I started to put on a little bit of weight. And uh, then when I was about 35, I was working in a sales position, and uh, pizza was always a quick way to get a meal. And I started to get a tire at that time, and uh, which I've kept. So that was in 76 when I started in that profession. So... How would you describe your relationship to food now? I think my relationship with food right now is really, really good because of OA. Um, My weight had gotten up to 258 pounds. Okay, food is an addiction. As far as I'm concerned, it's an addiction. Um, I came into OA because I was a drinker too. And um, I started going to AA for that Mm -hmm. issue. And uh, one of the fellows in the program, when he got a chip, he indicated that he had more time, had not eaten ice cream and more time than he had given up alcohol. And he talked about OA. And at the time, I was finding that I was, because I wasn't drinking, I was using ice cream the same way. Or I would get up from the dinner table and go make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I would make two or three, Mm -hmm. even though I did not need them. I had had a good filling meal. Mm -hmm. But there was some desire on your part to keep the meal going. Right. Um, What do you think that was? Well, as I know now, we're trying to change our feelings. And uh, I'm realizing now, looking back, that uh, one of my big issues was self-esteem. I did not feel very good about myself. I thought everybody else was much better than I was. Hmm. So that, that created a need, but food wouldn't really satisfy that need. No. In fact, it would end up making you feel worse. Oh, yes, yeah lot worse because you've eaten and you're, I'm gaining weight. And um, one of the nice things about the 12-step program, it basically says that um, whether it's gambling, sex, alcohol, 
drugs, that uh, these things are just a symptom to an underlying problem, which is addiction. And as one of the people that I, I like, one of the authors says that there's two things about an addiction. One is that we're powerless over it. And two, when we're in our addiction, we're not living, we're not alive. The point being that when I started doing something about the things, my issues, I started to have a life. And as I told you before the program, I, I'm 72, and I started in this in when I was 64. So I have a little over eight years. And um, it's like unbelievable what happens. In the OA program, we get a sponsor. We develop an eating plan, and we go to a nutritionist. So I did those things. What was something valuable you think you gained from seeing the nutritionist? Well, the nutritionist told me how, how large my portion should be. And uh, the first thing I did was I went through a week of writing down absolutely everything that I ate. And then the nutritionist analyzed that and said, so much of it's carbohydrates, so much is protein, and so much is fat. And this is where you're off. The idea of having a portion, and I already had a scale, so I started weighing my portions, and I do that today. And uh, it makes it real easy. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to think, oh, is it okay to go back and have seconds? No, it's not. I already had my portion. Something that you said that I think it really is resonating with me and is, I keep going back to it in my mind as you're talking, was when you said that when we're in the grip of our addiction, we're not actually living. Those are really strong words. That's, mm-hmm. that's very compelling to me. Now that you say you have a healthier relationship with food and that everything's going well in that area for you, how does, how does that feel? How does that equate to more life? When I'm in my addiction... That's all I'm thinking about. With food, it's like, what's the next meal? Or if I'm into something like ice cream, you know, I would go down and get a pint of ice, or a half a gallon of ice cream and give my wife a couple of spoonfuls, and then uh, I'd have a healthy portion and put it away and uh, say, oh, it's going to last me three days. And I'd be back in the refrigerator in an hour going, oh, it's okay. So there are certain foods that uh, I crave them. When I start having them, I crave them. And uh, I will continue to eat them until they're gone. And it's easiest for me to keep them out of the house. Now, I'm I'm not sure that I'm answering your question, but when my mind is consumed by something other than living my life and being a happy individual. It's like, I'm not alive. How do you think that attending OA meetings and uh, hearing other people's stories, does it make it easier in any way for you to deal with your situation by hearing others discuss theirs? Oh, yes, big time. patience isn't a problem? You don't find yourself growing restless with... 
I guess it's an element of selfishness that some of us might have where you think, okay, well, enough about your problem. You know, my problem is what's important here. Has OA taught you something about patience and compassion? Yeah. In our meetings, uh, we, one of the things we do is we share. Usually in the meetings I go to, it's three minutes at a time. So if it's not my turn to talk, I get to listen. And it's, taught me a lot of patience about listening and many times I don't get to share and I realize it may not be that important because I'll go a full meeting and go oh I got to say such and such and be wanting to jump in there and say it and the last person that shares gives me what I needed for the day. Overeaters Anonymous uses the 12-step program as the model for its members to learn to understand and cope with addiction issues. One local group that offers a different approach is Old Pueblo Community Services. Their particular focus is helping those who are re-entering mainstream society after displacement due to military service, incarceration, homelessness, and substance dependency. Zach Ziegler talked with Tom Litwicki, the chief executive officer of Old Pueblo Community Services, to get his input on addiction and recovery. We live in a society where it seems it's a bit of the id's playground. There are so many things that people can go out and hit that instant gratification button. How has that changed things? It's, that's very interesting. So when we look at gambling, for instance, gambling used to be something that you maybe did on vacation. Yeah, when you could get somewhere that it was legal unless you were playing in the neighborhood poker game. And you saved up money to do it, and you prepared for it and planned for it. Now I was just traveling through uh, New Mexico in the last couple weeks, and when you get gas, they ask you whether you'd like to buy a ticket. It used to be that if you were someone who was uh, addicted to sex, you might have to go places, whereas now you just go on the Internet. But, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier, and especially in areas like gambling. And I think you'll see it keeps increasing with youth because their parents are gambling a lot more, so they see it as more of an acceptable activity. And uh, it's going to, I would imagine, have some pretty far-reaching consequences. When it comes time to talking about these kinds of things, uh, the typical layperson is going to think of the 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, any of those similar programs. How much is that a part of the program today, or have things changed? more people in the United States who uh, have an addictive disorder show up at 12-step groups or things like that uh, than show up for residential or any other kind of outpatient treatment. So that's still the primary route to recovery in the United States. There has been a significant amount of growth in other groups, primarily around people that are looking for a more secular option because the 12-steps have a very strong spiritual package. And then there's an even larger group of folks who meet the diagnostic criteria for addiction and then recover without any intervention. So some people just recover based on their own capital, their family, their church, their relationships themselves, and and don't enter into treatment at all. Relationships are critical for recovery, looking at Uh, what will get someone from using an early stage recovery to long-term recovery is centered around relationships. Treatment is about relationships. Recovery is about relationships. Using drugs is about relationships. The relationships are really the glue. What are the, the services that often people come and see you 
needing to help them get through recovery? So for us, the the first thing people come in needing is housing. And that's really more a, a result of what it is that we do. And so we work with folks who have highly chronic addictions, mental health conditions, and it's reached a point of homelessness. People who come in with an addiction problem are typically not trying to address the addiction problem, but are trying to address a problem that arose from their addiction. For a long time, there was kind of the idea that, well, you have to deal with the addiction first. Recently, we've really turned that around and said, no, all those things will support recovery. So we're going to work with all those things first. And it makes sense. You're not going to try and work on insight in yourself and trying to improve that until you're sure you have a place to sleep and live, and then you can work on that. How significant of a barrier in addiction recovery is reintegrating someone into society? When people are moving from addiction, active addiction, to recovery, uh, one of the challenges people typically have is, how do I now work within society? Addiction's a chronic disorder, and so it often emerges in a context of a set of behaviors. And then throughout addiction, people have a considerable amount of behaviors and actions that go with pursuing and meeting the rewards of getting further drugs and alcohol, which then, of course, you then have both of these factors that typically come into recovery and how will you actually change the way you live and what's your new role and interaction in society. What about the worry of falling into old habits, falling in with old crowds? I think that when we're working with people in recovery, oftentimes they want to make up for the time that they've lost which, of course, is uh, not going to happen. It's kind of like when you talk about people recovering from trauma. They can have a good life, but they're not going to have that life. Things have changed. And so when someone goes into recovery, one of the first things they're dealing with is coming uh, to grips with the disorder that they have. And typically anyone who has any kind of a chronic disorder often starts with denying the fact that they have it. And so once they come to grips with the fact that they do have that, then it's about rebuilding a life around that new reality. We just heard Zach Ziegler speak with Tom Litwicky, the chief executive officer of Old Pueblo Community Services. There are links to get in touch with the organizations you've heard discussed on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Special thanks to Janet of Overeaters Anonymous for her help with this show. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and listen to our stories via the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.